0: ...Bibles to Acts chapter 12, and we're going to read from the end of Acts chapter 12 into chapter 13. We're starting a new series today, and we're going to be looking at the life of John Mark in the Bible, and that's going to mean drawing from verses in the epistles and the book of Acts, and as we look at that, I really think there are many lessons that we can learn. Some years ago, I wrote a book on the life of John Mark, and uh, it's been out of print for a while now, and the publishers have been saying to me, Can I republish it? Well, I've been thinking about whether to republish with them or republish with someone else. And I'm at the moment not sure who owns the copyright. So I thought, well, if I preach the series again, at least the information will be out there. And we can then work out how we're going to spread the word around with the lessons that we can learn from John Mark. But Acts chapter 12 is where we're going to read from today. And we're going to divide this whole series into five sections just looking at some of the moves that John Mark made during his lifetime. And uh, what we're looking at today is the move that he made from Jerusalem to Antioch. In subsequent weeks, we're going to look at the move that he made from Antioch to Cyprus, then from Cyprus to Jerusalem, and then from Jerusalem back to Cyprus. And then at some point in his life, he received a call to Rome. And so we're going to look at all of those various moves as a way of unravelling the mark, uh, the, the life of John Mark in, in Scripture. So Acts chapter 12, as we look at the move to Antioch from Jerusalem. And I'm going to read from verse 25 into chapter 13, verse 3. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark now in the church that was at Antioch there were certain prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger Lucius of Cyrene Manaen, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul as they ministered to the Lord and fasted the Holy Spirit said now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Now, this is just one little insight into the life of John Mark. And as we begin this series, I'm going to give you some background information. And I'm going to unlock this particular message around three themes. The first theme I want to talk about is the early prominence that John Mark gained. And that can be challenging, actually, to have a lot of prominence when you're just a young man can cause you difficulties later on, unless you work out how to handle that. So we're going to talk about early prominence. And then we're going to look at something which I guess at different points in our lives has affected all of us, and that is raised hopes. You've been in that position where your hopes go up and you think, this is the answer. And sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. But handling raised hopes can be quite a challenge for us. In fact, some people get so disappointed because they say, my hopes have gone up so many times that I'm not going to allow my hopes to go up again. Well, that's actually a bad position to get into because we've got to have hope. And hope doesn't disappoint us when it's godly hope. So if you've reached that position where you're thinking, I don't want ever to get my hopes up again, you're going to have to change your mind about that because God wants you to have high hopes in Him. And the hope that's in Him is not just the optimism that the world has. It's something that's sure and guaranteed that we can depend upon. So we're going to talk about raised hopes. And the third area that I want to talk about is rather strange. I want to talk about what I'm just going to call effective anonymity. Now, I know that anonymity is something that can be quite painful. You know, you're expecting to be given a certain amount of prominence and you get absolutely nothing. You've been in that position where you expected credit. In fact, you knew you deserved credit and you got none. Everyone else was mentioned except you. And you were really the person who'd done all of the work. And you can sit there feeling really resentful. But, you know, sometimes God can use that anonymity to work something in our lives. Sometimes he hides us away so that he can be fashioning us, whereas we might think, oh, I'd like to be out there in front of everybody. Well, sometimes it's more painful to be fashioned in public than it is to be fashioned in private. And if God knows you're in for a time of refashioning, he might choose to hide you away for a little while so that he can do the reshaping. And you might be thinking, what's happening? This isn't fair. But that anonymity is something that God has given and that anonymity can be effective. Now, one of the things that we'll learn as we look at the life of John Mark is that there are seasons for different things in our lives. I'm not saying that you stay anonymous forever. I'm not saying that you discard early prominence. There can be seasons where these things come in. The danger is that if you don't see the seasons, that you just have a one-track mind and you don't allow God to move you through different phases in your life. John Mark had to go through different phases and it was going through these different phases that God took him on to maturity. And really, we are talking about going on to maturity as we're looking at John Mark's life. I guess that's a real big theme of John Mark's life, going on to maturity. And we'll pick that up as the final point at the end. But let's begin to look at early prominence in John Mark's life. We've already read from Acts 12, but I want you to go back to Acts 12, verse 12. Acts 12, verse 12 says this. So when he'd considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Now, this is a very interesting phase in the life of the church in Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas had gone from Antioch to Jerusalem with relief funds there was a real sense in the churches that were springing up, the new Gentile churches that were coming into being, that they owed a debt of gratitude to the church in Jerusalem. And they knew that the church in Jerusalem was often faced with hard times. And so they decided at various points in the New Testament that they would send finance to bless the church in Jerusalem. And the church in Antioch decided to send this finance by Barnabas and Saul. Paul was still called Saul at that point in time. And they'd been ministering in Antioch. You may remember that what had happened was that Saul had gone off into his home region, which was around Tarsus in what's now eastern Turkey. He'd been ministering in that region. And the church in Jerusalem heard that revival had broken out in Antioch, in Syria. And what happened was the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to Antioch. And whilst Barnabas was in Antioch, he decided that he was going to bring Paul out of isolation, because Paul was ministering on his own in the eastern area of what we now call Turkey. He was going to bring him into the church at Antioch so they could minister together. And it was during that time that the church in Antioch decided to send the gift and the gift went in the hands of Barnabas and Saul. It was going to be an interesting time, Saul, going back to Jerusalem. He had been there at least once (laughs) since he'd persecuted the church. But when he was there that time, they also found him a little bit hot to handle. And he started talking about having a mission to the Gentiles. And when he started talking like that, they they were just happy for him to move on. And so when he moved on, it says the church had rest. But now lots of things have happened. And Paul and Barnabas are back in Jerusalem ministering this gift to the church from the churches in Antioch. And whilst they're there, persecution breaks out afresh in the church in Jerusalem. Not by the hands of someone like Paul this time, but directly from Herod. Herod, the Jewish king, decides that he's going to deal with the church. And he arrests James and kills him. That's James, the brother of John, not James, the brother of Jesus. And he arrests Peter with a view to killing him too. And so this is a really traumatic time in the church. They've lost one of their key people. The church in Jerusalem in the early days was led by Peter, James and John. The James at that stage was James, the brother of John. Then, after James's death, another James, James, the brother of Jesus, rises to prominence in the church. But at this point, it's really traumatic. They've just lost one of their key leaders who's been executed by the king. And Peter is, to all intents and purposes, about to meet the same fate. And so the church decides to pray. And you can imagine what kind of prayer meeting this was. One leader down, one imprisoned, and another whole church under threat. Now the church decided that they were going to pray in the home of John Mark. And his mother Mary was hosting that prayer meeting in her home. And it was whilst they were praying in that home, and the church was really interceding. You know, real powerful prayer going on in John Mark's home. And I'm sure John Mark was part of this. And what happened was, that as the church prayed, Peter was released. Now, he wasn't released by Herod, he was released by the angel. And the angel of the Lord came... Woke him in his prison cell, stood him up, chains fell off, comes out past the guards, the gates open to him, and he finds himself in the city, a free man. Because the church prayed. The church prayed in John Mark's house, and the prayer was answered powerfully. Peter is out of prison. Angelic visitation has secured the release. And Peter immediately goes to John Mark's house and he's knocking on the door of John Mark's house because everyone's in there praying, Lord, Lord, get Peter out of prison and there's Peter knocking at the door and they're all too busy praying to answer the door. And in the end, the servant girl Rhoda She answers the door, sees it's Peter, can't believe it, thinks it must be some sort of appearance of Peter or something. And she doesn't let him in. She just goes and tells everyone Peter's at the door and they don't believe her. But eventually, he's in. Now, that just shows you how central John Mark's home was at this point. In fact, it seems that The relationship between Peter and John Mark might have been really close because later in his letter, Peter refers to John Mark as my son. It was almost as if he was his son in the Lord, someone whom he'd had a real spiritual affinity with. So this was a really privileged young man in the church, had real early prominence. In fact, he might even have been more prominent than that. Because one early church historian, Papias, tells us that the gospel that we call Mark's gospel was written down by Mark at Peter's dictation when Peter was in Rome later on. Now, if that is true, and that's how John Mark fits in with that gospel, then there's a very interesting little two-verse, almost footnote, in Mark's Gospel that we perhaps ought to refer to. Because it actually says in chapter 14 of Mark's Gospel, a rather little bizarre incident. It's just there in Mark 14, verses 51 and 52. Let me read it to you. It's almost like a footnote. It just sort of creeps into the text. Now, a certain young man followed Jesus having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, and the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Now, how did that get into the Gospel? It just seems like, well, what is that doing there? I mean, it's as if this young man decides that, you know, as Jesus is going off to the Garden of Gethsemane, he comes along out of curiosity. And that curiosity has him standing there wrapped in this sheet, watching everything that's going on in the garden until someone spots him, tries to grab him, and he just runs for it. Now, what's the consequence of that? Well, I'm not going to preach a sermon on that. But what I am going to say is that some Bible commentators believe that the only reason that's in there, it's a bit like a cameo appearance that you sometimes get in a film where the person who wrote it just sort of appears, you know, maybe not a very important part, just a walk-on part to say, hi, it's me, and then they walk off again. Hmm? And some people think this is John Mark going, hi, that's me. (laughs) This this was me. Now, if that's true, it is possible, and I don't want to stretch this too far, but just so that you're aware of how all of this might fit together, it's possible, if that was John Mark, that the upper room where they were holding the prayer meeting for Peter's release was the same upper room where they held the meal before Jesus went to Gethsemane. There wouldn't have been that many homes open to Jesus in Jerusalem. So it's possible that it was that home. In which case, John Mark might have actually been much more in the center of all that was going on than we might previously have thought. He might have been there, it might even have been his father that carried the, the water pot and led the disciples to the upper room. It might have been John Mark watching from the sidelines in the upper room who decided, I'm going to follow them to the garden. It might have been all of that. So this young man might have been very, very prominent. <laughs> He might have been the young lad that everybody in the church knew. He might have been the young one who'd seen everything, been there, done it, you know. You know the kind of person. hmm? The church kid. The one who's sort of seen it, known it, done it, and just almost got a testimony too big for their years, even when they're in their early teens. And it could have been like that for John Mark. Let me just add this up a little bit more for you. It turns out that he was the cousin of Barnabas. That gets mentioned in Colossians. Now, we don't know whether he was first cousin, second cousin, tenth cousin once removed, or however you work these things out. And family relationships can be complicated. But there is no doubt from what it says in Colossians chapter 4 verse 10 that there was a family link. So we're beginning to see that there was a really prominent family in the middle of the church in Jerusalem. A family where the mother would host the church prayer meeting. A family where the cousin gave all his money to such a point that they changed his name from Joseph to Barnabas and called him the son of encouragement in the church. These were prominent people in the church. I don't know what happened to the father. Who knows? He might even be one of those who died in the persecution in the early days of the church, when Saul was lashing out. We do not know, but we do know that here is a young man who has been nurtured in the heart of the church. You know, these days they have expressions like PKs and MKs, which means preacher's kid, missionary kid, and they write all of these things about what it means to be a preacher's kid and a missionary kid, And all of the challenges that come from having so much prominence and being so involved in the centre of what's happening in the Christian life and you're having to work that through. I know my own children had to work some of these things through. And there are loads of funny stories that I could tell you about things that happened, particularly with Paul, when he would just let it drop, you know. Oh, by the way, so-and-so has prayed with me. Yes, I have met him and I have met that. And people would look and think, how does this young man know everybody? Well, he was just a PK, wasn't he? Just a preacher's kid. And the danger of that is, you can know all of the language, you can know all of the people, you can know all the things about everybody, but it doesn't mean that your personal maturity has reached the level of your experience. And that's the catch. And this was the thing that John Mark was up against it. He had experience in some ways that was vast. But his maturity was minimal. If he was the young lad who ran away naked, you can see the level of his immaturity. He wasn't exactly prepared for the night excursion, was he? Could at least have found something better to wear than his bed sheet. But, you know, that just indicates that There are dangers when you get prominence early in your life. Now, some of you might be sitting here thinking, well, praise God, I missed out on that one. But others of you might be sitting there thinking, that explains something that I've experienced. I grew up in church to the point where I knew everybody knew everything. Hmm? Or I've had prominence in other areas of my life. Well... Don't envy those that have had that level of prominence because I can tell you that there are pluses and minuses whichever way round it goes. (laughs) You might say, oh, I do envy you being brought up in a Christian home. I do envy you all of these things that you went through. Oh, it must be so good to have had your father doing this and your mother doing that. Hey, 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 there are downsides as well, all right? And don't ever covet someone else's life because what you've got is what you're meant to have. (laughs) And if your background was anonymity from the beginning, well, praise God for it. But if you got bucket loads of prominence when you were young, just be careful, because bucket loads of prominence when you're young can actually have complications later on. I'm very mindful of that verse in Proverbs. I'm sure you, you know the verse, but uh, it often comes to mind. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 21. Now, I think it's good, as it says for a young man to bear the yoke in his youth. I do think it's good. I don't have a problem in young people having responsibility. I spent 20 years of my life involved in universities and colleges, taking student missions and conferences and so on, and I've seen 18-year-olds lead Christian unions that are bigger than most churches. I remember one 18-year-old leading one university, Christian Union, and that guy so impressed me. He had 250 people that he was dealing with week in, week out, at the age of 18. Now, I realize that there are challenges. <laughs> like, okay, you do that when you're 18. What are you going to do when you're 19? What are you going to do when you're 20? You've had all of your life. You've actually achieved at 18 what some people are still trying to do at 60. So how do you cope with these kind of things? Early prominence is a privilege, but is also a challenge, can be a real challenge. I've seen people who've led the Christian Union in their first year, who've actually struggled in their walk with the Lord in their second year and third year, because they've gone from prominence to anonymity and haven't known how to handle it. So there are challenges in these things. But Proverbs 20, verse 21 is quite a good verse to underline, because It can help all of us. It says, an inheritance gained hastily at the beginning will not be blessed at the end. I sometimes think that Jesus must have had that verse in mind when he taught the parable of what we call the prodigal or the profligate son. (laughs) It's exactly what happened, isn't it? He gained his inheritance hastily at the beginning, And it wasn't blessed at the end when he was sitting there in the pigsty. But praise God, God can give you an end beyond the end. So what he thought was the end wasn't the end. There was a better end. But you can see the dangers. And now let me tell you, if you underline this verse and you don't feel that you've yet received your inheritance, this verse will be an encouragement to you. Because when you're praying, Lord, Lord, I'm getting really angry. I haven't had my inheritance yet. You can say, well, praise God, it's worth waiting for because if I get it too soon, it might not be blessed in the end. But if on the other hand, you are someone who's received a lot of your inheritance already, here's a word of warning. (laughs) You need to walk with real circumspection before the Lord so that you don't squander what God has given. So, important verse. You've never underlined Proverbs, uh, 2021. 20, it's a good verse to know. And particularly when you're looking at John Mark, because really his life illustrates that. So much prominence, so early on. Peter calling him my son. Barnabas as his cousin. There at everything. Prayer meeting in his home. Peter knocking on his door when he's released from prison. My goodness, you know, there was probably no one who knew everyone like John Mark. You know, you'd sit down with him and he'd know everything. Oh, I was there when Jesus said that. Yeah, yeah, I remember. I was there in the temple when Jesus said this. Yeah, I actually heard him. And if you got the quotation slightly wrong, John Mark would probably go, no, he didn't actually say it like this, he said it like that. And you think, oh dear, you know, these teenagers, you know, they know everything. And John Mark did. Knew everything. He had all of that early prominence. And then it gets even more exciting because Paul and Barnabas turn up and he really is like a kid with the sweet shop in front of him, you know. There's all this going on. They've got the prayer meeting in his home. He's right in the center of things. They're praying. They're seeing Peter released from prison. And my goodness, on top of that, Paul and Barnabas are in town. And he wants to find out more. He wants to know what cousin Barnabas is up to. Where have you been? What's it like down there in Antioch? And you brought Paul back. That's amazing. How did you get hold of him? Oh, I had to go and find him. I went across the mountain ranges into uh, that other area. And I brought him back from where he'd been ministering on his own. He had so many stories to tell about how he'd been shipwrecked and how he'd been beaten and all of these things. And John Mark would have been agog. Wow, this is incredible. You know, this is my cousin Barnabas, who's the one who went and got the Apostle Paul, the man who had the amazing conversion experience, who'd been ministering on his own there. He brought him back and wow, they're here in Jerusalem. In my home. (laughs) They're around. I see them. I know them. Can you imagine what that was like? And then... He hears something that he never thought he'd hear. Would you like to come with us? Well, what do you think he was going to say? Nah, nah, got too much on. Yeah? Just too busy. There were just too many things. No, when Barnabas and Saul said to him, come with us to Antioch, he was, oh, I'm up for that. <laughs> this is my chance. Instant missionary. Don't even need to do bible college i mean who needs to do bible college when you've walked with jesus you know who needs who needs to do bible college when you're barnabas's cousin who needs to do bible college when you were there in gethsemane who needs to do bible college who needs to do any training i am ready for this i am the man of the moment i am the chosen one out of all of these people you know in jerusalem they have picked me and he'd heard all of the stories He'd heard what was happening in Antioch and his hopes were going up, 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 up. You could just imagine it. Now, you might sit there thinking, I bet they weren't, but you've just forgotten what you were like when you were in your teens. You've forgotten what you were like when you were in your early 20s. When opportunities like that are served up, you might play it cool on the outside. Say, well, no, it doesn't bother me, you know, I mean, it's just... Just one of those things, isn't it really? You know, Jesus in the temple yesterday, Barnabas and Saul taking me to Antioch tomorrow. It's just life, isn't it? But inside, you know, no matter how cool you are on the outside, there's something that's making your heartbeat faster. And you're thinking, yeah, I want this, you know, I want this. My hopes are going up, you know, this is great. I'm moving into my calling right now. I'm, I'm, I'm beginning. My ministry is on the way. You know these days you'd be signing television contracts at this particular point wouldn't you You'd be asking if you you could be on at least three Christian channels because after all you are a person of prominence and you know and it is about time young men had their share you know we've we've heard from the old ones it's time we hear from the young ones you know the way that young people think you know, <clears throat> wisdom is great, but youth is better. You know, that's the way that you tend to think when you're at that age. And of course, you know, you look at the older people and think, when I'm as old as them, I know twice as much as them anyway. So what's the big deal? And you've got all of these things going on, but it's just the, the pattern of raised hopes. And in some ways, you just have to realize that it's just human nature for the bubble to start getting bigger and bigger, you know? But the trouble is, when bubbles start getting bigger and bigger and bigger, They're in danger of bursting, aren't they? And if you can be aware that bubbles burst, it actually helps you to understand the patterns that take place in your life. Now, I know some of you, and I know some of your stories, and you probably think that if I now say, there's someone sitting here who had so much promise open up before them, and then it all seemed to be dashed, you are probably there sitting there thinking, he's talking about me. But let me tell you, I know enough of the stories in this place to know that there will be a number of you that are thinking the same thing. Because it's common. It is common to find that your hopes go up, but the reality doesn't materialize in quite the way that you expect. It's very easy to have your life mapped out ahead of you and to decide this is going to happen, then that's going to happen, then something else is going to happen and you've got it all worked out. And what you're saying is, God, bless these plans of mine. And what God is saying is, no, I will give you my plans. But we're saying, Lord, no, I think my plans are better. Look, you know, I've thought this one through. These are great plans, Lord. Just bless these plans. And the Lord's saying, no, just come off your agenda and come on to mine which may mean that you get some disappointments along the way. And that can be hard. It can be really hard. Now, I don't know how you read the Bible, but I do try and use my imagination. Now, there's nothing wrong in using your imagination. If you've ever met someone without an imagination, you have met a really boring person, you know? You're trying to share something with them and you're all excited about it. And saying, I can't think what you're on about. You think, oh, please, you know. Uh, it, was, uh, it was Oswald Chambers, the writer, who, who said, oh, for a sanctified imagination. You need a sanctified imagination, but you do need an imagination. Otherwise, you know, just even everything's boring, isn't it? Uh, but the Bible should be exciting. You know, just imagine, just imagine now, just Read these three verses again from John Mark's perspective. Now, in the church, there was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. The Holy Spirit said, Now separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Now, next time I'm going to talk to you about how disappointing it was that the Holy Spirit didn't mention John Mark. But let's just leave that for the moment, and notice that no one else mentioned John Mark either. When this account was written up, he doesn't get a mention. Now, you might think to yourself, well, that's not a problem. I mean, he would have been really, really excited to have been in a church with a, an amazing multicultural ministry team like that. Look at them. Certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, top of the list there. Simeon, who was called Niger, probably indicates it was a multicultural team. Lucius of Cyrene. Menaean who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Now, that is amazing. Isn't God incredible? you can have a tyrant like old Herod and you can have his foster brother as the leader of the church in Antioch. That's not bad, is it? God can reach into the most amazing families. And God is calling people out of every family, tribe and nation. So even some of these families where you think, God, no one could ever get saved in that household. Herod's foster brother was leading the church in Antioch. Amazing. Amazing. And they've got such a wealth of talent that Saul even comes in at the bottom of the list. And I'm sure he wasn't too worried about that. But John Mark's not on the list at all. Now, just imagine how that feels. That is why I say you need a sanctified imagination. Some of you need to remember what it was like when you were full of youthful ambition. Maybe some of you don't have to remember. Some of you might still know what it's like to be full of youthful ambition. But it's tough, isn't it? When you have been chosen, when it has been said to you, come with us to Antioch. And when you come to Antioch, you discover that there's absolutely nothing for you except to sit in the back row of the church and not even to have your name mentioned on the notice sheet. Not even a, and today we would like to welcome Brother John Mark from the church in Jerusalem. The prominent young man who was there then and this, that and the other, whose home is used for the proclamation of the gospel. Just nothing. Not even a hint there. And he's there in this church. And I'll tell you something else as well. No matter how exciting cross-cultural life seems from a distance, when you're living it out in practice, there are realities that you have to come to terms with. Now, I know we've got a multicultural church here, and some of you know what I'm talking about. Now, it wasn't such a big distance from Jerusalem to Antioch. There wouldn't have been huge climate changes. Hmm? But it was a very, very different environment To be in an essentially Gentile city and an essentially Gentile church when you've been in a very, very strong Jewish culture. He had a lot of changes to make. I know sometimes when people arrive in England from Africa, all they can talk about is how cold it is. I, I agree with you. I'm not sure that England was ever meant to be inhabited. I just think that I just think that the people who turned up forgot where they put the boat and couldn't get off the island when the winter came and I think we've been stuck here ever since and you know I'm really glad to, to go somewhere else when winter comes and to find somewhere warmer now not everyone agrees with me but that's just my view all right so I sympathize with people who come here saying the climate is not what I expected hmm? it's quite funny you know we were in um, in uh, Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, and we were going through the shopping centre, and uh, they were selling thick winter coats in the shopping centre in Malaysia. And you, you would never need a coat in Malaysia, but this was just to prepare people for the shock of coming to England, you see. <laughs> they had to go and buy these thick coats, ready for the journey. So, there are challenges when you cross cultures. There can be challenges of climate. There can be challenges of food. There can be challenges of just the way you do things. And just church would be different. You probably weren't expecting that. If you had been in the church in Jerusalem, you had been in the premier church, the founding church, the number one church, the center of everything. And suddenly you are in a different church where hopefully they sing culturally relevant hymns. Now, I know I was uh, with the church in, in, a, in the Far East on one occasion in a place where um, the church is not given any prominence and we were sitting around and we were singing in the local language. And when I came home, I said to Marion, I sang in the local language, they gave me the sheet and uh, i sang the songs with them and she said how do you know what you were singing i said it's not too difficult if you're singing yin tong hiddle high ho yong tiddle high ho yong. you know what you're singing don't you you're singing as the deer pants for the water you might not have a clue what the words are but you know what you're singing and, you know, sometimes people don't do cross-culture very well. They should have actually written it in some glorious discordant harmonies and with a different tune. Then I wouldn't have known what I was singing. But what we sometimes do is we just import, don't we? And you, I mean, I, I, it's so funny. There's, there's one country I go to that really is into Hosanna praise tapes. The whole worship is based on Hosanna praise tapes. And they listen to these tapes over and over and over again. And they then reproduce it exactly as it is on the tape. And, you know, they even buy these little bell trees to have by the drum kit because all the Hosanna praise tapes, they go every now and then, you know. And so they actually wait for exactly the right moment on the Hosanna praise tape they go with their bell tree, you know. And if you do it differently, they say, oh, you haven't done that right. I thought, well, what's right about it is just that you've heard it on a, on a CD or a tape and, and you are now taking that from one culture and putting it down in another. And there's no challenge to it at all. I like it when you actually get back to something that feels like, hey, this is proving that the gospel works in every nation. The gospel can cross cultures. The gospel is not western. The gospel is not eastern. The gospel can actually be whatever it is, wherever it is. And we need to let it live like that. And I hope, I really hope that the church in Antioch did not sing the same songs as they sang in Jerusalem. I hope that it actually had some Gentile songs as well. It's not that I'm against, you know, the, the Jewish songs and the dancing. But, you know, you don't have to impose a culture when you respond to the gospel, do you? You respond to the gospel because it's the gospel. And then you live it out in your own context, and your own culture. And I hope that John Mark had some shocks. I hope that he sat there thinking, this is not what I'm used to. This is not what I'm used to. This feels different. They pray different, they think different, they live different. They're actually interpreting the gospel back into their society. They're making it work where they are. I hope he felt uncomfortable. I hope as a young man, he suddenly discovered for the first time, he's like, this is not familiar. Just imagine, he would have had everything as familiar. He'd been in from the beginning. He knew what everything was, how everything worked. If you wanted to know what was going on in the church, ask John Mark. He might not have been in the leadership, but he knew all of the answers. And now suddenly he's in a situation where I hope, by God's grace, he was receiving some surprises. They do it differently in Antioch. And suddenly you're in a whole new learning experience. And one of the things that you have to do when you're in a new culture is to stop comparing. It just doesn't work. You have to live where you are not constantly going on about where you were. I mean, if you get into that mentality that you're always praising where you were instead of where you are, just be careful when you get to heaven. Okay? It's so much better down there on earth, you know. Oh, so much better down there. No, don't get into that mentality. Enjoy where you are. It's good preparation for where you will be. All right? But when you're put into another culture, just accept that culture. Don't try and reproduce where you were Live where you are and then try and make that work. Make the gospel work where you are. Learn how to do the cross-cultural switch because that's so important. But it can be so difficult. We want the familiar. You know, we might be in Britain, but please, please, let's pretend it's Lagos. (laughs) Well, let's not because the traffic jams in Lagos... Make the traffic jams in London look like free-flowing traffic. <laughs> Lagos is the only place where you can have a traffic jam at two in the morning. I don't know how Allen Avenue clogs up at two in the morning. It is a mystery. We don't have to be where we were. We are where we are. And where we are is how we can translate the gospel, you know? It is possible to do church in a way that is, you know, not just the music celebration before we all go off for jerk chicken lunch. You know, it's, there are just different ways. You just, just let's be where we are and live what we are. And, and, and let's express it and try and get the cultural mix and understand that the gospel can be all of these things. And I hope John Mark was sitting there thinking, this is not what I'm used to. But by God's grace, it was something that was working in his life. See, God wants to confront us with things that are beyond our knowledge. There is a real danger in getting to the point where you think you know everything. Because the person who thinks they know everything needs to come up against something which will put their life into perspective. And God will be looking for some kind of hat pin to burst your bubble you know, some kind of big pin that will make you go, (laughs) and you just come down to size. Because that is so necessary. Now, you you can pump yourself up until you go bang, or you can let God put you in a place of anonymity where he can let you down gently. And that's exactly what John Mark was confronted with, I believe. When he got to Antioch, There was no prominence. It was totally different from where he was in Jerusalem. He probably would say to people, hey, I'm John Mark, and they'd go, John who? (laughs) And that would have been good for him. It would have been good for him. Because an inheritance gained hastily is not blessed at the end. And God was wanting to put some perspective into this young man's life. Now, we will move on with him. But I think we need to pause with him at this point before he goes to Cyprus and learns lessons on Cyprus. Let's realize there were lessons that he was learning even in Antioch. As God was saying to him, young man, you've been prominent, but you know there's a time when it's best to come off the pedestal and just come back under my wing. Just come back where I can love you and I can work in your life and I can deal with you and I can bless you and I can build you up because I know what's best for you. Now, whether you are a John Mark type who's gained prominence early or whether you're someone who's just sitting there saying, well, praise God, that wasn't me. What I want you to see is this that God uses the anonymity for all of us in a way that can transform us. And that is just so important. Don't always want to be out the front. Don't always want to be the person who's going in for superficial affirmation. I know I've I've sat with young men sometimes in meetings who yes amen their way through the whole message and yet, in the end, you wonder how much actually impacted their lives, because it is possible to say yes, amen to everything on autopilot. You know, sometimes I've been tempted where people are going, amen, yes, amen, to say something really outlandish just to see if they'd still go, yes, amen. You know, <laughs> huh? there's chicken for dinner, yes, amen. <laughs> you, know, you think, how did they, how did they get onto that? But sometimes it's it's just a way of of, of seeming to be listening without actually taking anything in. And it's so easy to get into that mindset. And God's wanting to work with us and saying, look, there are going to be times when I'm going to take you aside. Where you're not prominent and where you're not given those opportunities. Now, some of us, when we get put into that position of anonymity, will fight it. We'll fight it. We'll say, I'm not having this. I'm not having this. I rebuke it in Jesus name. I am called to be the head and not the tail. Above only and not beneath. I am a victor and not the conquered. And you know, you start confessing all of these things and you think, oh, just grow up. Okay. All right. <laughs> this, this, this doesn't mean you are now a failure. It just means that God is doing something for a season in your life yes. where he's trying to build something be a fool to try and let all of that happen in a position of prominence when actually it would be better done in a position of privacy. So see anonymity as effective. Allow for seasons in your life where you don't have to be in the front. It doesn't mean to say you are defeated and conquered and everything else. It may just mean God is having an opportunity to do some deeper things in your heart life. And if you let God do those deeper things, and let these lessons of anonymity, I can tell you that what will happen is this. You will go on to be useful and to be mature. Because I I hesitate to say this in John Mark's hearing, and at this point you perhaps need to put your hands over his ears. Hmm? I've seen that happening in operating theatres sometimes. These very conscientious anesthetists will just cover the patient's ears (laughs) you don't want to hear this and so John Mark was not really very useful at this point in his life and he really wasn't very mature now I don't want him to hear me say that too loudly because it might be more than he could handle it might be letting him down too quickly I remember we we arrived in Jamaica and who uh, who was here who was on that trip I'm just looking around Warren or anyone who was on that trip with us and we we were shown into this pastor's office and uh, he was on the phone so he couldn't greet us so we were just sitting there in his office whilst he was counseling someone I remember some of the phrases that he came out with he said he said in in really strong uh, accent which I won't do justice to He said, now let her down gently. Don't mash her, man. Don't mash her. John, this is new to me. This is new to me. You, but I understood the principle that you let people down gently, you know. You don't mash them. And, and so we've got to understand that with John Mark. You need to let him down gently. You don't mash him. He was useless. He was immature. But he has to find out gently (laughs) and let God work in him to take him on to usefulness and maturity. So I hope you've learned something from this young man today. We're going to learn more as we go through this series. But let's pray that the lessons that have been there for us, we can learn Father, I just want to thank you that you have your hand on each one of our lives. And we might have plans. We might decide that we've got an absolute foolproof agenda for our lives and we just want you to bless it. But Lord, you know what's best for us. I just pray for all of us, those of us who were prominent in our youth and those of us who weren't. Our hopes raised and then found them dashed. Those of us who found ourselves caught up in situations of anonymity and have not understood it. Lord, help us see these times of anonymity as opportunity where you can work in our lives and bring us through to usefulness and maturity. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about Hugh Osgood's ministry, visit www.hughosgood.com. There you'll find ministry updates, new and free Bible teaching resources and videos, as well as information on upcoming events and broadcasts on TV and radio. We trust you have been encouraged by this message.